from our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute, just down the road from me here in Washington, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum over in London. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Randy McEwen. Randy is the CEO of Ballard Power Systems, one of the largest and oldest fuel cell manufacturing companies in the world today. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Randy. And with that, let's get started. All right, guys. So good to have you both back with me. How are things over in London, Chris? What's going on in your world? Uh, yeah, no, all's good. Um, I've been sort of making a lot of um, hay out of a terrible joke that I'm probably one of the few people in the office with my team. Um, so actually still kind of enjoying that. That's kind of a, a bit of fun for us. And I'm excited about Jet Zero. And if you heard about this over stateside, there's a big uh, initiative that British government's pushing at the moment to get the first zero emission planes out. And uh, Boris Johnson's very keen that the UK does the first transatlantic zero emission flights. So, you know, they've obviously taken the... Um, Greta Thunberg uh, flight shame thing to heart and decided, you know, the quickest way to beat COVID <laughs> is to figure out how to fly without feeling guilty so that we can all abandon the island the minute lockdown ends. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't undersell the value of, uh, of shaming politicians, right? Sometimes that's uh, there's no better currency. Well, I think you also can't underestimate how desperate Brits are to get out of the country for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. How about you, Patrick? What's going on with you? Not a lot, Andrew. I'm uh, I'm desperately trying to survive our current heat wave, as I presume you are. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think the the big noise was the the in the last little while was that 350 million pound announcements in the UK. I'm not sure that I don't know, Chris. Do you have a do you want to share any insights, or or is this just more good news about the UK leading the world on the? driving this forward yeah although i mean admittedly i posted something about that the other day saying that it was encouraging that the government's announced 350 million pounds for industry and someone turned around and went well germany's going to finance 9 billion euros of green hydrogen so why does anyone care about 350 million which to be fair is a reasonable response so <laughs> um, mind you it's not like uh, the doe is doing any better with 100 million dollars total for the state so you know i guess you've got to find your find your areas of priorities but you know i mean it's, it's it's all positive right i mean i think the most positive thing is just seeing the amount of money at the global level that's going into a green recovery i mean i think south korea announced around 95 billion dollars of funding for green recovery um as part of their sort of steps to come out of covid which is just enormously positive so um i think it's certainly kind of quite refreshing i don't know how you guys feel about it but to me you know thinking about what it was like after the financial crisis and looking at how people kind of responded to that and where all the money went and kind of how that was supported it's kind of nice to see that actually pretty much everything that's been talked about at least in uk europe um japan south korea is all talking about how do we do a green recovery how do we build that stronger and there's definitely more pressure on companies this time that if they're taking state money that they're kind of you know a lot of british companies give back money that they got given from the government i suspect that's happening in quite a few european countries too so in that sense it's actually kind of quite positive you know and i think people are just really excited to be out and about now i mean god knows how long that will last but for now it's pretty positive um so i don't know what's like stay side of course for you guys i imagine it's all completely different show over there as well uh, well, from a <laughs> from a hydrogen investment standpoint, yeah, probably not as exciting as Germany. Although I, I, I have I have to admit, and Patrick, I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look. You know, we're not a political podcast here, guys. Uh, you know, do that disclaimer. But obviously, Joe Biden has made some waves, at least in the U.S. recently, uh, in proposing what is it a two trillion two trillion dollar investment plan for for clean energy investment. 
Um, I don't know, Patrick. I haven't read through it. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Have you taken a look? Is there any uh, mention of hydrogen in there? It's a little early days, I realize, and it's still a camp. It's a campaign promise, not really a plan, right? To be honest, Andrew, I haven't had the had the chance, but uh, I, I'm I'm sure that this is this is one of the additional reports that's landing on my or uh, additional things that's landing on my weekend reading list going forward. <laughs> I think the thing, if we're going to go into the political kind of strand of things that caught my interest in the last little while, is that the the head of the Ohio State Legislature uh, got hit with an arrest with a re- relating to uh, a sixty million dollar bribery probe around. Uh, the removal of renewable energy subsidies and support scheme for, I think, I think it was just nuclear energy. But yeah, um, that's there's all sorts of craziness. Oh wow, that's that's scandalous. See, now that's the kind of salacious type of uh, topic we need. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Andrew wants to see. They got to juice things up around here, right? Yeah. Guys? <laughs> well, if, if you want juiciness, you've got to go to Ohio. That apparently. Yeah. Well, there you go. Who, who knew, man? Who knew? Cleveland. Uh, I was going to say, if we miss stories, what we probably haven't covered before is Hydrogen One Capital, this new hydrogen fund that's launched in the UK. Um, that actually was quite an interesting story. I mean, that's a £250 million fund that's due to launch at the end of the summer. Not the summer, sorry, end of this year. Some uh, A couple of quite big hitting guys, well, a guy from Exxon, a guy from Shell, um, both setting that up for uh, hydrogen projects. Um, details on exactly the mandate of the fund is still pretty limited, but that also is kind of interesting. And, you know, in the context of significant sums of change, it actually shows that private sector is probably mobilizing a lot more capital for most of this, actually, than the public sector is, which is which is what it should be. But it's, it's kind of nice to see that. So that's kind of quite positive. So um, not as salacious, maybe, though, as, as people being kicked off, but um, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, you really, really brought us back down to to reasonable turf there, Chris. But yeah, I know, right? I'm sorry, I, I crashed it. No, no. So guys, um, it's really exciting. You know, it's a one year anniversary of the podcast, almost. Well, actually, will be when this comes out, and um, you know, one year on, we we decided we had to get Bala back on the show. Very nice segue, Chris. One year in, you're doing great at this point. Hi, oh, Randy. How you guys doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you very much for making the time to join us, Randy. Really appreciate it. All right, so we'll just jump right in. So, uh, Randy, the last 12 months have been a boom for the hydrogen and fuel cell industry. Uh, Do you feel there was a single inflection point that drove this or a confluence of several factors? It's been an extraordinary period, actually, not just the last 12 months, but the last 18 months. And I, I think there are really five different things that have happened that have coalesced to bring together a lot of momentum around the industry. The first is if we were sitting here a couple of years ago, the number of field deployments would have been de minimis. But today there are about 32,000 fuel cell forklifts in operation in the field, primarily at Amazon and Walmart. There are about 18,000 fuel cell passenger cars in operation. I I drive one. Uh, There are 6,000 fuel cell commercial trucks and buses in operation, primarily in China, but but quite a few buses now in Europe uh, and the U.S. as well. So the deployments uh, in the field has changed dramatically, and that's given a lot of confidence in terms of the reliability of fuel cell technology. So the discussion on the technology front has shifted from does it work and is it reliable to what's the comparative performance advantages and what's the comparative total cost of ownership. So deployments is number one. Number two is there's been massive shift in policy over the last 12 months. And today we have around 66 countries that have net zero carbon targets for 2050. And out of that 66 countries, 20 of them now have hydrogen roadmaps where they're saying hydrogen will be a key centerpiece of our decarbonization strategy, not just for mobility, 
but for energy and industry as well. And uh, those 18, those, you know, 18, 20 countries now that have hydrogen roadmaps, uh, you know, comprise 70% of global GDP. So uh, a lot happening on the net zero emission front uh, from a policy perspective. That's really cascaded to a number of regions now with very stringent emissions policies. And for the first time, focused on commercial trucks. And so last year in 2019 in Europe, the EU set in place for the first time emission reductions for the heaviest trucks. So there needs to be a 15% reduction by 2025 and a 30% reduction by 2030. And in my opinion, the, the only way, the only way to satisfy these stringent requirements is hydrogen fuel cell technology. You can't get cleaner diesel to satisfy the requirements. And as we'll talk about, batteries won't satisfy the use cases for heavy vehicles either. And then you move, uh, you know, from Europe over to California. Just uh, about a month ago, CARB introduced clean truck standards. Starting in 2024, class four to class eight trucks, 9% of all new trucks sold in California must be zero emission. And that scales up each year to 75% by 2035. And class seven and eight tractor trucks will start at 5% zero emission in 2024, scaling up to 40% zero emission by 2035, with a goal uh, that 2045, all new trucks in California must be zero emission. Now, since that clean truck standards regulation was passed by CARB in California, we now have 15 additional states signing an MOU to adopt similar type of zero emission standards for clean trucks. So on the policy front, this is a pretty significant shift. And then you're seeing in Europe in December, uh, you know, talks of a, of a, of a green deal. And, and then you see um, a policy designation where they want to be climate neutral by uh, 2050. And then you have now uh, more recently, uh, you know, in kind of the pandemic era, we've got a situation where they're looking at green recovery plans where hydrogen is a key centerpiece of that. And so you're seeing now for the first time billions, multiple billions of commitment for hydrogen and particularly the production of green hydrogen and the adoption of fuel cell vehicles uh, in these markets. So a lot has happened on the policy front and you'll see uh, in the coming months, uh, potentially the coming weeks, uh, new policy being adopted in China for uh, you know fuel cell deployments in a number of key demonstration regions. So that's the policy front. First was deployment. Second was policy. Third is the growing recognition of the value proposition that fuel cells offer in medium and heavy duty motive. So Ballard is a 41 year old company. In our entire history, everyone's talked about passenger cars and and having hydrogen fuel cell passenger cars. We've been quite uh, vocal and perhaps a thought leader on this over the last number of years in particular, that you really need to look at the heavy and medium duty mode of use cases, bus, truck, rail, and marine. And there are three key reasons why. The first is that these are the value propositions where long range, heavy payload, and fast refueling uh, have value. And so batteries struggle in those type of use cases. Fuel cells uh, are very high performing in those use cases. The second is that these are typically uh, use cases or applications where the vehicles return to base at night. So you have centralized depot refueling. You don't need to, like you have, like you require for the passenger cars, you don't need to have a distributed refueling infrastructure. And it's very much the same user experiences that 
you know, transit operators currently have where city buses return to base and refuel at night after a long day in the field uh, or delivery trucks returning back to base at night. So that's a second key reason why medium and heavy duty motive applications are important. And then the third, and this is really important to me, is that these are applications that have a disproportionate contribution to emissions. And so we're talking here about typically about 10% of all on-road vehicles are commercial trucks and buses, but they contribute close to 30% of, of greenhouse gas emissions and a whopping you know, 50 to 70%, depending on which jurisdiction you're in, on PM 2.5 and NOx. So you're abating a sector that has disproportionate contribution to emissions and to date has been very difficult to address from emissions profile. So again, deployment's number one, policy number two, and medium and heavy duty motive. I just want to add one more. And that's really now corporates jumping into the hydrogen and fuel cell industry uh, in an unbelievable way. And so if you go back to mid-2018, Wei Chai and Ballard announced a joint venture transaction for China. Wei Chai invested uh, and bought 19.9% of, of Ballard. Since that time, it's been dominoes with Bosch, with um, uh, Cummings, with um, Michelin and Faricia, uh, with Aveco investing in Nikola, uh, and more recently with Daimler Trucks and Volvo announcing a joint venture for commercial trucks. So you're now seeing all these corporates rushing into the hydrogen fuel cell industry with a clear recognition, again, that the medium and heavy duty mode of use cases, particularly bus and commercial truck, are the markets they're attacking. So those are a number of different reasons why we're seeing this unprecedented momentum in the hydrogen and fuel cell industry. And Randy, you put out a fantastic report as Ballard with Deloitte, um, I believe it was uh, last year, or it might have been January this year, on um, the sort of total cost of ownership comparison for a bus. And so you were looking at kind of the switchover point. I think your numbers were around 2023 for the UK and Europe was kind of the timeline. So that was obviously really interesting. And that got a lot of people, a lot of analysts were really excited about that. Um, you, you touched on something I thought was really interesting. Why is it that the industry did focus first on passenger vehicles rather than the commercial vehicles? I mean, it seems to me that you're 100% right. And we've had this conversation we guess that the industry kind of almost missed a trick by going down the passenger vehicle route instead of the buses route or the heavy duty trucking first. So why do you think it was that way? And, you know, in a sense, are there lessons that can be learned from perhaps the mistake of focusing on that first that we need to avoid this time around? Now there is this kind of renewed interest and momentum. Yeah. So there's a couple important points there. Um, one is that I think historically people believed you need the volume of the passenger car market, which is, you know, kind of 90 million units per year, you need the volume of the passenger car market in order to bring down the cost for hydrogen, bring down the cost for commercial applications. And actually, what we're saying is the opposite. What we're saying is that uh, with adoption of, of hydrogen across a number of different sectors, decarbonizing production of steel, uh, you know, decarbonizing energy, using hydrogen to fuel commercial vehicles, as you get this scale for fuel cells in commercial vehicles, and the, the scale of hydrogen across these multiple sectors, you can then take the cost reduction there and apply it to the passenger vehicle market. So we're, we're actually flipping that on its head. The other thing, too, is that, you know, if you go back 20 years ago in particular, the thesis really was that there was no zero emission pathway for passenger cars other than fuel cells, although battery electric has been around a long time. And so I think uh, until more recently, uh, you know, with the evolution of battery technology and 
and really the startup of Tesla. And Tesla deserves so much credit for really developing the battery electric car market. And now I think, and it's always been viewed, I would suggest, as a competition between is it going to be fuel cells or is it going to be battery? And one thing that we're very clear on is actually they're highly complementary. So if you have light duty vehicles that don't need long range requirements and have lots of opportunity for recharging, battery is very compelling. Where you have heavier duty vehicles that need fast refueling, not long recharging, and do have long range requirements, then fuel cells are very compelling. And both of them use the same electric drive line. So I think a lot of the discussion has been about getting the volume to drive the cost down. And then it's been about uh, also the chicken and egg conundrum uh, in terms of, you know, if you don't have fueling stations, you can't have cars. And if you don't have cars, uh, no one's going to put up fueling stations. The centralized depot refueling kind of addresses that chicken and egg conundrum in a very effective way. I want to come back to one point you mentioned, and that's the joint Ballard and Deloitte report that came out in January of this year, looking at the total cost of ownership. There was also a second report that came out prepared by McKinsey for the Hydrogen Council. And it looked at 35 different use cases and it compared the future total cost of ownership of fuel cell technology, effectively against battery technology and against incumbent legacy diesel and internal combustion engine technology. And in those 35 use cases, what they concluded was that fuel cells would have uh, a comparable or better total cost of ownership compared to battery electric in 22 of those 35 use cases. And importantly, in nine of them, the total cost of ownership would be better than uh, diesel or legacy internal combustion engine technology. And just for our audience, that was the McKinsey Hydrogen Scaling Up report that they did for the council. That was the different document, just so that I know we have a lot of analysts on the calls who like to go and find the documents after. So just so I make sure we've got the right one for them. Yeah. So, so uh, this report is on the Ballard website. You can grab it there. The Scaling Up report was actually in 2017. Uh, that was the first McKinsey report. Sure. I'm yeah. talking about the second report that came out in January that focused on the total cost of ownership. And the conclusion, again, was that in nine use cases or applications, fuel cells would have a total cost of ownership better than battery electric, better than internal combustion engine. And not not surprisingly, those are the use cases that Ballard has been focused on, and particularly bus, truck, rail, and marine. Okay, fantastic. So look, I mean, I think as the next question, one of the things we wanted to cover off, Randy, is that, you know, when Andrew opened with sort of the last 12 months being a boom, one of the most obvious areas has been the stock market. Sure. If you look at share prices of listed companies, it's been an incredible time to have been an investor and Ballard as one of the largest listed companies in the space is absolutely no exception of that. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk to um, sort of the attitudes and the types of investors that are now taking position in listed companies. I mean, Nicola was talking um, about this recently on a podcast and saying it's been very corporate heavy, which is somewhat unusual. And in the UK, there's been a lot of retail investors in the space. So a lot of banks have been commenting that that's been a really hot area, especially for IT and Paris. There is a lot of retail investment. So it'd be really good to get your perspective on that and to kind of dig into why certain types of investors are coming in now and what they think about the space. Yeah, so I would say there's a, there, all three are really coming in. So uh, certainly you're seeing corporates, as I mentioned earlier, investing in hydrogen and fuel cells. When you look at uh, publicly traded companies, though, there is a significant retail interest in the story now, like you've seen with Tesla, not just institutional investors, but a, a fairly significant retail base trading the stocks as well. And um, on the institutional side, I think what's been really interesting is that 
you know, the, all these developments I talked about that's leading to an understanding of how hydrogen fuel cells can play a, a major role in decarbonizing mobility, decarbonizing energy, and particularly now for heavy and medium duty motive. At the same time, you've got this ESG phenomenon. And so you have massive capital pools that are pivoting out, out of carbon intensive investments and looking to move to investments that are carbon light and effectively carbon neutral in the future. So there's a lot of capital coming out of these carbon intensive investments and, and looking to be put to work. Uh, and, you know, as the valuations of the hydrogen fuel cell companies have increased as well, uh, now you're seeing companies that have market caps that are of scale with sufficient liquidity for institutions to check a few boxes as well. Uh, beyond the ESG mandates. So I think that's a key one for me is we're seeing the quality of investors is unprecedented. So I've probably had more investor meetings in the last six weeks than in the prior six years. And it's really a function of a number of investors starting to come up the hydrogen learning curve uh, and, you know, very, very educated now. Whereas say 12 months ago, many of those investors weren't really looking at the names. And so uh, a lot of them are, are spending time to understand the industry and look for ways to play it. And the three questions we always ask investors is to say, do you believe that electrification will play a key role in decarbonizing mobility? And everyone can agree with that, a thesis. Secondly, do you believe fuel cells will play a key role in decarbonizing and electrifying heavy and medium duty motive? And I think increasingly investors are checking that box. And then third, how can you get exposure to this space? There aren't a lot of publicly traded companies. And from a Ballard perspective, when you kind of look at the, the talent we have, the customer list, the technology, the products, uh, the market positioning, market share, uh, you know, the strength in the balance sheet, we check a lot of boxes as well. So I think uh, a lot of investors are now looking at how can I play this space to get exposure, uh, which names are well positioned. And just confirming that one before I go to Patrick, and apologies, I'm asking a lot of follow-ups, but uh, what actually is the current Ballard market share, just as you alluded to it? Is that uh, information that you've made public? Yeah, so if you look at the fuel cell bus market, you know, we probably today have a, just under 800 fuel cell buses in operation. Again, that was zero, almost uh, close to zero a few years ago. Uh, and so um, right now in Europe and North America, basically Europe and primarily California, we're probably about 75, 80% market share for fuel cell buses in the field. Uh, and in China, when you look at all the commercial trucks and all of the commercial buses and, and the buses that are in uh, operation there, we're probably in the 50 to 60% market share with our technology inside these vehicles in the China market. So Randy, we've kind of concentrated on, on uh, I suppose, quite a bit around mobility. And obviously that's that's been a, a very prominent sector in, in the hydrogen and fuel cell markets, particularly, you know, in recent years. Does that remain the primary driver of demand for Ballard systems? Or, or have you seen, you know, particular sectors that are potentially, you know, strong future markets that you're, or are there any that you're particularly targeting for that matter? Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about these four medium and heavy duty motive uh, markets, bus, truck, rail, and marine, in that order. We see those order of adoption. And what we usually talk about is a scaffolding effect for our revenue, where the bus market grows, and then you add on top of that the truck market. Both those markets are growing, you add on top of that the rail market, and then you add on top of that the marine market. And you end up with a very nice scaffolding effect on your revenue pie as you look, not to 2025 necessarily, but 2030. 
We believe there's going to be an extraordinary growth curve between 2025 and 2030, particularly as these emission requirements in 2024 and 2025 in the U.S., California, and other states and Europe really start to bite and, and, and uh, uh, you know, change uh, deployments. And so um, what we're also seeing in the rail and marine market is these are markets that have long-lived assets. It takes a while for transition. And so I think you're going to start to see in the 2023 timeframe, rail really start in earnest. We have the world's first fuel cell tram operating currently in China. Uh, five trains operating with 10 Ballard engines. We spent three years in that market learning about things like shock and vibe and noise uh, and you know structural mounting on top of these trains, the codes and standards. Um, so there's a lot of learning that we're now applying to the European market with Siemens as well. And so uh, you're going to start to see these four different markets uh, showing penetration. Uh, are there other markets? Of course, much longer term. We view the passenger car market as an enormous market opportunity, particularly when you start looking at vehicles that have very high utilization. So not the current duty cycle where perhaps you or I have a vehicle that's used, you know, 45 to 60 minutes a day, but vehicles that are autonomously driven on shared mobility platforms that are used 18, 20 hours a day. Now range becomes important. Now recharge time or refuel time becomes important. And so we see, see very large addressable market longer term in the passenger vehicle market. And there are a number of stationary power applications as well, where PEM fuel cell te- technology will have a role. Uh, we're seeing a number of data centers that are, are really looking for new, uh, not just backup power, but in some cases, you know, distributed generation or primary power opportunities. Uh, so there are a number of stationary power applications uh, you know, renewable uh, grids that are, are looking at, you know, uh, isolated grids or, or, or uh, microgrids where you can have uh, renewables producing hydrogen and using that hydrogen through a fuel cell to produce power. Uh, and, and the X surplus hydrogen could be used for mobility applications. So there are a number of different use cases that we're seeing. I think as you look at 2025 to 2030, these mobility applications are really going to start to scale. Randy, just as a, a quick follow-on, I have to ask this. I'll never be forgiven in work if I didn't didn't ask this, given that I worked on mining for for quite a while. But um, your partnership with with Anglo American to develop the the three hundred and sixty uh, short ton capacity haul truck. What are what are the challenges you face when you're looking at a vehicle of that size with with that level of utilization and and to be blunt about it, the extreme challenges of being effectively off road. Yeah. Patrick, this is a market I'm actually really excited about. Um, you know, we spent quite a bit of time with Anglo, and they've done uh, extraordinary financial modeling around production of hydrogen on site with a solar farm, uh, and then using that hydrogen uh, for base power requirements as well as for uh, these trucks. And so, um, what you look at is a very low cost of hydrogen production at the site. So, that's the first thing that's important. Uh, is you're not talking about a significant, you know, transport and, and distribution of the hydrogen. You're actually talking about it produced at low cost at site and used at site. Uh, and then on the trucking side, really it's about getting the right uh, packaging of fuel cell technology onto these trucks and the right storage. Uh, and if you look at the, the typical duty cycle of these trucks where they typically, uh, you know, wind up and wind down a, a, a very steep grade, um, batteries can't satisfy that use case. They're too heavy. Uh, going uphill would be a real challenge. 
Uh, and so fuel cells uniquely offer the opportunity to decarbonize these trucks. And so it's a market they're very excited about, a uh, market we're really excited about. And uh, I think you may have seen not just with Anglo, but we also uh, have seen a, a very large mining truck that's been demonstrated by Weichai in China with Ballard fuel cell technology in, inside as well. And so we're starting to see a number of different uh, players in the mining market looking at decarbonizing mining. Uh, you know, you've got companies like Caterpillar, for example, uh, you have companies like JCB uh, looking at, uh, you know, off-road equipment, uh, con- mach- you know, machinery and construction equipment. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of these applications. Uh, but I think the, the, to answer the question, the real challenge is around, uh, you know, shrinking the size of the fuel cell to get enough fuel cell power on board, as well as making sure you have a very effective packaging of the storage solution to get enough storage on board as well. And Randy, you've, you've uh, managed to cover uh, the original format of my, my next question. So I'm going to tweak it a little bit, keep you on your toes, if that's okay. Um, and just ask you, uh, you know, based on, on Ballard's uh, expectations for deployments of its solutions 2025, 2030, what kind of policy changes, what kind of policy structures do you guys envision as being the most helpful for you uh, and and your and your market uh, colleagues to meet those expectations. Yeah, to meet those goals. In my mind, the key to really making this tipping point where you see high volume scaled adoption of fuel cell mobility is addressing the cost of hydrogen. And so this comes out in spades in the McKinsey report I referenced earlier, where basically they say at $4 per kilogram of hydrogen, you cost competitively address 50% of the global mobility energy market. And so there's a lot of focus, particularly on some of the EU announcements recently on green recovery, on looking at scaling electrolyzers so you can drive down the cost of electrolyzers and drive down the cost of, of green hydrogen. It's really important. We're going to have gray hydrogen. We're going to have blue hydrogen. But eventually, we're going to move to green hydrogen, which is basically hydrogen produced from wind and solar primarily as renewables through electrolysis. So we saw this in solar. We saw it in wind. And we've seen it uh, to a certain extent in the battery industry with massive cost reductions as you scale up. We are at the first second of a 24-hour day in terms of market adoption for fuel cell technology and electrolysis. And with the type of deployments that are being planned just in Europe alone, let alone if you go to Saudi Arabia and Australia and China, uh, you know, North America, where we're going to see scaled electrolysis as well. Just in Europe alone, we're talking about now sales funnels of gigawatts of electrolysis that I think it's going to drive the cost of electrolysis down by 70 to 80%. And so I think by 2030, we will see $4 per kilogram of green hydrogen production and delivery. This is $4 delivered to your vehicle, uh, you know, in these uh, medium and heavy duty motive applications. So in my mind, the policy uh, work that's being done in the EU right now I expect to see that followed in other regions where there's a very heavy emphasis on scaling the production of green hydrogen and driving down the cost of electrolysis. Because in in my mind, it's not just about having a total cost of ownership at the vehicle level. 
but it's making sure you're achieving the climate change and emissions policies throughout the entire value chain. And one thing that I think probably isn't understood very well is if you look at the comparative scaling up of refueling infrastructure versus recharging infrastructure, it's one thing to have a Tesla car in your garage living in a suburban environment. It's one thing to have one, two, a handful of buses that you're recharging at a centralized recharging station. It's quite another to recharge hundreds of buses and and thousands of commercial trucks. And so one of the things is if you look at Exhibit 22 in that McKinsey report, is they compared the costs of scaling your recharging and scaling your refueling infrastructure. And hydrogen is very powerful because the more hydrogen you need, the lower the cost of the hydrogen production. And as you look at larger refueling stations with very high utilization, so rather than have a handful of passenger cars, you have hundreds of fuel cell buses and commercial trucks or marine applications and rail applications that that are using lots of hydrogen, you get very high utilization off your hydrogen refueling station infrastructure and your costs come down dramatically. By contrast, as you start scaling up recharging of number of vehicles, you're now looking at high voltage substation and the cost per vehicle or the cost per kilometer or mile driven increases. The opposite is true for hydrogen. So to come back to it, the the most important thing we can do is to drive down the cost of hydrogen in order to effectively address a total cost of ownership. Because when you look at a lot of these use cases, you know, yes, the vehicles are an important part, the the upfront capital costs, but the most important part for these vehicles that are, you know, using long range is the energy cost. So if you can drive down the cost of, of hydrogen, so you're going to see policy, you are seeing policy already with uh, you know, multiple billions of dollars. Uh, you know, Germany just announced $9 billion as part of its own green hydrogen recovery plan. Uh, and you're going to see probably over $100 billion in Europe, in my opinion, being announced shortly. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of jurisdictions. Saudi Arabia just announced gigawatt of, of electrolysis. Australia is talking about gigawatts as well where they use low-cost renewables, produce hydrogen, and then export hydrogen to other jurisdictions that are going to use it as a fuel, like Japan, like South Korea. Yeah, and, and so just, um, so Randy, that report, um, I just was looking while we went through it. So is the path to hydrogen competitiveness a cost perspective? So so I think the the report there is, is a fantastic report, and you've obviously gone through it, and it's been referenced in a lot of documents since then. It's certainly, I know, looking at a lot of submissions to people at the British government, it's something that's come up quite often. Something I guess that is kind of interesting for me to get your view on is, when it comes to hydrogen, I think you're right to cover the fact that declining cost of hydrogen is a really important part here. A discussion that started coming up in the UK is actually around what is that model for refueling station networks? So if you look at the northwest of England, there's a project called HiNet, which companies like Caden and others are working on. One of their views actually is that you have um, hydrogen distributed to refueling uh, stations through the gas grid. You know, so they actually use the gas grid, which already has a distribution to then do the refueling rather than having dedicated refueling stations in every single location across the UK or you know, if it was France or Germany, et cetera, doing that. Uh, and the challenge that's come up a lot is people talking about purity because PEM fuel cells have a very high purity requirement. And so if you're taking hydrogen out of the gas grid, are you potentially bringing impurities in and then damaging the fuel cells? So uh, I guess it's kind of just interesting to get your view on it. I mean, do you think that the refueling game is going to be a case of 
dedicated hydrogen production a la the Nikola model in each and every location and that's how you get the best costs and the best economics do you think it's going to be done through sort of a pipeline network you know a few central hubs which is the rise model five central hubs and then you distribute out to maybe 20 or 30 other stations do you have a view it'd just be interesting to get your perspective yeah the answer is yes <laughs> it's all of the above all of the above <laughs> yeah so actually it's going to be very dependent on where you are uh, and um, you know what the cost of production is very different uh, when you look at the cost of production in different uh, environments uh, for hydrogen so what you know, there is a massive battle that's effectively going on between legacy industries to say, who is going to be the provider of energy to mobility in the future? Utilities want to recharge, uh, you know, gas giants, uh, industrial gas giants like Air Liquide and Linde see opportunities to provide hydrogen as an, uh, you know, not just an industrial gas, but now as a mobility gas. You've got uh, the natural gas players that are worried about stranded infrastructure. And what does that mean? For example, you've got uh, out of Hong Kong infrastructure assets that owns a lot of the natural gas infrastructure in the UK and Australia now testing hydrogen in the pipelines up to about 20% hydrogen penetration. And I don't think there's any issue uh, about the purity. Uh, there are questions about what's called hydrogen embrittlement of the pipelines. Um, so, the natural gas players are looking at how do we use hydrogen and, and don't uh, be in a situation where we've got this sunk investment that becomes stranded. And then, of course, you've got the shells, totals uh, of the world, wondering, uh, you know, BPs of the world, wondering what they're going to do with their forecourts in the future if, if uh, gasoline isn't the fuel of the future. And so, you know, they're looking at incrementally adding hydrogen to the forecourts. And, you know, the, the uh, fueling station I go to here in Vancouver, for example, is a shell station where they've added hydrogen fueling. So I think there's a big battle among different industries on who's going to fuel the future. I do believe that centralized production of hydrogen and transporting it through pipeline or transporting it through tube trailers is more likely than on-site distributed generation uh, and production of hydrogen on site. Uh, but there will be cases where that makes sense. Um, but I do think large scale production of renewables, large scale production of uh, hydrogen through electrolysis, centralized, uh, and then through a, a network distributed to the appropriate sites through both pipeline and, and tube trailers. So speaking of, of the future, you know, there's an awful lot of, of conversation around emerging technologies, new generation systems. You know, some folks talk about, you know, the, the regenerative fuel cells. Um, you know, are these areas of interest to Ballard? And, and, and if, if you're able, what, what are the, the next great innovations you're planning for, for the market? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things we're very, uh, very clear about in terms of our communications, particularly with public investors, is Ballard could be profitable this year. If we made zero investment in research product development, we would be profitable this year. We could have been profitable last year and the year before. But this year, we'll probably invest in the range of $27, 28000000 million in research and product development. And so our goal is not to just to be the leader today and 10 months from now, but 10 years from now. Because we do see these large, attractive, addressable markets growing significantly between 2025 and 2030. And we want to have very high market share when that happens. So one of the things that we're expert at is really uh, looking at the value chain of PEM fuel cell technology at the material science level, the membrane electrode assembly, bipolar plates that comprise a hydrogen fuel cell stack, 
Uh, and then how that stack goes inside of a fuel cell engine with all of the balance of plant components like compressors, humidifiers, pumps, valves, et cetera. And so um, right down in the material science level, you know, what gas diffusion layers are you using? What membranes are you using? What catalysts? What ionomers? How do you look at lowering your catalyst loading? What additives can we put in there? How do we process and seal our membrane electrode assemblies? And on the bipolar plates, which material do you use? Do you use a carbon-based material or do you use a, a, you know, a metal plate material? And the design of that bipolar plate to push oxygen and hydrogen and water uh, through those plates in different uh, you know, operating environments and, and duty cycles and climatic conditions and how all that operates in an engine in the field. And so we're fairly vertically integrated at Ballard. And so we are investing a lot in our next generation of membrane electrode assembly, our next generation of plate, therefore our next generation of stack. And we're constantly looking at how do we achieve much higher performance, whether it's power density, whether it's efficiency, and then most importantly, cost reduction. So um, one of the key things we're doing uh, at Ballard in terms of next generation is, you know, the top three priorities cost reduction, cost reduction, cost reduction. And so our program right now at Ballard has what we call our three by three, which is nine different programs, three different programs over three different time horizons over about the next three years. Those nine programs cumulatively reduce the cost of our fuel cell stack by 70%. And these nine programs are very advanced now. So there isn't a lot of technology risk at this stage. So we have massive cost reduction coming at Ballard on our fuel cell stack and at the same time continue to improve the performance of the stack. So we're very excited about what's happening on the technology front. And then importantly, as you move from the stack and look at a full engine or module, as we call it, that fuel cell module inside of it has, as I mentioned, a number of balance of plant components. Historically, the supply chain has been very fragile in low volumes. But now we're seeing a whole new quality of supply chain emerge in the fuel cell industry. And so a lot of the tier one suppliers, uh, you know, think about Male, Bosch, uh, ZF, Plastic Omnium, Michelin, Faresia. A lot of these tier one suppliers that historically ha have had all their exposure to internal combustion engines and are seeing this massive disruption occur with electrification. Their business models are at massive risk. So they're now looking at how do we participate in the battery electric market? How do we participate in the fuel cell electric market? And a lot of them are now looking at the balance of plant components in these engines. And so instead of looking at, you know, small undercapitalized companies that don't have a history of scaling and massive cost reduction, now you have new players. And I believe five years from now, the balance of plant components in terms of reliability, durability, and costs will look dramatically different than they do today. So overall, I'm very excited about the pathway forward, not just for technology improvement, but for cost reduction. And I think cost reduction, uh, you know, I mentioned cost reduction earlier on the hydrogen side as being the most important, you know, enabler for that tipping point. Uh, I think then cost reduction for the technology, both electrolysis for hydrogen production and fuel cells, uh, you know, for fuel cell technology and vehicles, you're going to see about a 70% cost reduction for both those areas, uh, you know, through 2025 to 2030.
Well, look, Randy, I mean, I think we've asked uh, tons of questions. We probably could keep asking tons of questions and you fantastic set of answers. I, I think I've got one, if I could get quick view on. Uh, you talked about a range of aviation, but in the UK, we've just been talking about Jet Zero. So what is your view on fuel source for aviation? Um, it wasn't mentioned in your list. Um, maybe it's a little bit too much to the future, um, but it'd be good just, you know, just for our listeners, you know, maybe some of those things a minute on your kind of thoughts on on whether that's a market that's interesting to you guys. I know you've done some drone work and Ballard's led some work around that, but it'd be great to get your view. Yeah, so I actually think in the drone market, there's uh, many use cases, most use cases where I think battery technology uh, is going to be able to satisfy a lot of the drone market. Uh, there are use cases where you need longer range uh, and you can enable much longer range. So I think you'll see uh, you know, companies like Amazon investing a lot to look at how do they look at last mile deployment and delivery of packaged goods with fuel cells. Um, but more importantly to me is the urban air mobility market, because the, the same core technology that you think about that's going into an engine in a, in a passenger car or in a truck or on a train can be used for the urban air mobility market. And so that's the longer term market that we're more interested in, where we're seeing uh, I would say in the last 12 to 24 months, far more activity uh, with major aerospace giants, you, who you'd know, uh, now investigating in a very real way the opportunity to use hydrogen fuel cells. I think it's a very long way out before you see um, fuel cells being used for primary power because the reliabilities have to be at, you know, uh, the nth nine. So, uh, what you will see, though, and you'll see this in the uh, marine market as well as for cruise ships, you will see certain applications where fuel cells are used initially. For cruise ships, for example, they're sitting in port. You can use fuel cell power to power the hotel load requirements while it's sitting in port, but continue to use primary power, uh, uh, you know, uh, with, with current legacy, uh, you know, unfortunately, highly uh, emitting technology. So I think these are markets where the, you, you need to have extraordinary reliability. And it's going to take some time to prove out that reliability. But longer term, these are markets that I'm absolutely convinced will be hydrogen markets, but they're not on that 2025 to 2030 horizon. You know, they're more in the 2030 to 2050 horizon, in my opinion. Excellent. Randy, we have kept you well past the amount of time you, <laughs> you offered to give us. So it has been really fascinating speaking with you and really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I think we can we can let you go on that. It's been a lot of fun. Let, let's uh, queue it up again next year because I think there's going to be a lot of change in the coming 12 months. It is an, o- an open insight, Randy. That, that would be great. We'd love to do that. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Uh, Andrew flipping the tables on you a little bit here. What do you make of that? What do you think of, of uh, his comments and Randy's kind of perspective on the market? What kind of stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I thought, well, first of all, uh, to echo something Patrick said, uh, Randy is uh, certainly the consummate CEO and spokesperson for uh, for the hydrogen sector and fuel cell industry, right? But I think he drove home something that is something that we've talked about in a lot of earlier episodes around mobility in particular, right? Which is, uh, and it was interesting and excellent to hear, I think, a, a CEO of a company like Ballard you know, drive this point home uh, so so eloquently, which is that battery and fuel cell technologies need to be uh, considered complementary, right? Particularly in the mobility sector, 
they provide different solutions for different applications. And uh, he obviously thinks that there is, a, uh, you know, the Ballard has its place and the fuel c- hydrogen fuel cell uh, model has its place in the commercial and, and medium duty trucking, for instance, to start. Whereas for now, you know, battery applications make a lot of sense in the passenger side of things, right? And so I think it's it's really, it's good to be driving home that particular message that these are complementary technologies and they have their place uh, in a route to decarbonization for mobility, right? Um, so that was something that stuck in my mind. What, what about you, Chris? Well, look, I mean, I think um, it's fascinating to firstly get a sense of, um, you know, uh, the scale of the market. I think you did a really nice job at the beginning of the discussion to talk about actually how many fuel cell trucks already deployed, how many fuel cell buses, um, and talking about how quickly that really had all changed. I thought that was really useful and a good recap for a lot of our listeners. Um, I think the cost reduction piece is absolutely right. And, and I'd emphasize as well that, you know, when I was um, doing some work with the World Bank looking at cost declines on a lot of uh, listed fuel cell companies um, last year, uh, you know, we actually were seeing that most companies had made a 70% or, you know, somewhere between 60 to 80% cost reduction over the previous five years. So, you know, coming down another 70% really is huge, um, you know, and actually relatively short time frame in which they're doing that. So I do think that's really important. And, you know, this idea of um, what is the sweet spot for the market and, you know, this sort of stacking uh, scaffolding concept that he was describing where basset, uh, buses help you to initially build that kind of firm order book. Trucks then kind of come on the back and then you move up that chain, I thought was really nicely explained. Um, you know, it, it is without doubt the case that um, right now as well that Ballard, because of its track record in the space, being a well-established company and, you know, having fuel cell buses that ran in London for over 10 years and systems that have run in multiple applications is really well positioned in this market. Um, you know, and it, it actually is going to be interesting to see uh, how many other of the big PEM fuel cell companies that we've sort of seen for a little while are going to be able to get out ahead quickly. Um, you know, certainly some of the companies like PowerCell or Intelligent Energy have been around a long time as well and have great pedigrees and histories. Um, you know, but of course, actually catching up and scaling up as quickly as Ballard is going to be really interesting um, to see whether they can do that. And, you know, I think you were saying it's like a 70, 80% market share in Europe and the US, which is enormous. So I, I thought there were some really interesting takeaways for the audience. There are lots to think about. Um, Patrick, did uh, did you get the answer you were hoping for on the mining side? Yeah, Patrick, you you hit a a topic of, of tremendous interest on that one. Yeah, well, like you know, I, I, and I and I think this echoes echoes a little what what you just mentioned there, Chris, around the the, the kind of scale or the scaffolding kind of stacking aspect, right? The the whole truck I'm I'm referencing is a has a I think it's around 900 kilowatt capacity fuel cell in it. So this is big. This is very very big. And and you know mining trucks run, you know for folks who who mightn't be terribly familiar, you know the whole is the you know the whole load is is often in these trucks hundreds of tons. And as such, you know you go from you know the normal standard size vehicle to then you know over short durations adding huge volume, huge weight and then having none of it and going typically up and down reasonably steep hills and going for, you know, maybe a couple of kilometers. Right. And, and it's, it's tough. It's very, very tough. I've looked, I've looked at a few different technologies. I I think actually one of the things to quickly reference is that, you know, these trucks don't use diesel in an internal combustion engine. Typically they, they have a diesel generator at the back. So they burn the diesel to generate the electricity that then drives an electric motor. And the reason for that is the need for like like really strong kind of responsiveness and, and good torque. 
so yeah, like 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 I'm I'm really interested because it's it's an indicative market of the potential to use these technologies in, in very, very difficult circumstances. When we start thinking about the upper order here and we start thinking about what a a fuel cell uh, on a ship would have to look like, you're talking about like an absolutely enormous uh, fuel cell. And and part of the the challenge in all this, and, and Randy spoke to it exactly on, on the on the money, I think, is you know, getting the size down uh, is a part of it, right? The physical size, but also improving the the kind of the capacity to to kind of run these very very large scale uh, vehicles um, using this. Like like I think when we talk about battery tonnage uh, for a, a you know a three three sixty ton capacity vehicle, you could be looking at 12, 14 tons, which then has to be hauled in and of itself, right? So, so these are these are the really, really tough challenges, and and yeah, I, I actually think that's a very, very cool project, and I also think you know the the logic and approach that he described makes an awful lot of sense. And I mean, if you see the videos of the truck that he was describing that Weiche are running in China, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the thing is absolutely enormous, so it really is quite impressive. As slightly a pivot, I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to some of Randy's comments around at investors. Because I think it is a really interesting theme, and I was chatting to um, a couple of merchant banks and investment banks in the UK about this recently. Um, you know, this question of you know listing and investor profiles, and it was a really interesting point that he made about the fact that now these companies have reached a certain size and scale. Um, it actually has enabled certain types of investors that have requirements around liquidity and minimum sizes to actually come in and invest. And then this broader point, which I've heard now from a lot of people around ESG um, and the fact that actually fuel cells and hydrogen are seen as a way of balancing a portfolio with more of an ESG focus. I, I think those things were really interesting and just be good to get your respective views on that. I, I, I think this is the kind of follow on transitions that we've been kind of talking about for quite a while, right? You know, we've had huge volatility in oil prices very recently. There's now an awful lot of talk about future risk. There's a, a lot of kind of concern around the disproportionate returns that you historically got in that sector disappearing and, and a realization that the, the risk assessments that were in place don't take account of uh, some of the externalities and the liabilities that, that they may have going forward. So it, it makes sense that, that, you know, there's a reassessment going on. But what I think is even more interesting in this is that Given the commitments uh, by you know governments and obviously the kind of uh, the, the to some degree we have to you know acknowledge it consumer demand um, we're starting to see a change in what what people are are expecting from uh, kind of various kind of service provisions and, and various kind of resource uh, production facilities and companies right so this all bodes very well if you work anywhere across the decarbonization uh, transformation kind of sector, right? And and now that obviously there's an awful lot of very, very large stimulus packages being announced, this is a, a very solid time for expecting these companies to actually start to be able to, uh, to deliver viably. I, I imagine being rather blunt about it that you know, pension funds, for example, wouldn't have gone near a lot of a lot of the companies we're talking about or thinking about right now, partially because they probably didn't pay a dividend, and, and because the the kind of the the assumed risk of a, an early stage small company was just too much for them to bear. Now they are potentially emerging in as leaders of the the next version of the market, and I think that's the 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 change in mindset is nearly as much. Uh, 
the critical feature as, as the risk kind of adjustment is. All right, guys. So, you know, we ran long on the interview with Randy, which I think was was absolutely worth it. But I want to give uh, give you guys both a, a, mo- a moment to sound off here on the one year anniversary. Right. So we started this podcast one year ago uh, and we started with Ballard and we're wrapping up the year with Ballard. And I think it was an excellent way to do so. But I wanted to quickly turn the turn the uh, tables over to you guys and, and get your thoughts you know, it's been a it's been a fun ride doing the show. What has changed in that year? What are your big takeaways over the last year? And uh, you know, just a, you know, some sort of sappy uh, one year anniversary kind of thoughts from both of you guys. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been an incredible incredible year. You know, at a time when when there's been so much disruption and so much kind of uh, cause for concern and, and pessimism in the world, the fact that we're starting to see um this take off and, and when i say take off it's taking off like a like a jet like is it's just an incredible and and i think you know it gives you gives you you know hope for the future right like it gives us a, a prospect and a pathway and um hopefully hopefully we have a few more anniversaries ahead of us but uh, but yeah i don't think i don't think when we started this that we ever expected that we'd be talking about the industry having developed and grown at the scale that it that it has and um thank you to 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 everybody who's come on um and who's who's participated and all the the folks who've sent in comments and and all the folks who've listened and shared and showed and uh and to you guys for your you know incredibly optimistic uh, perspectives on the world that I desperately try and dampen down every episode <laughs> it's our pleasure did you keep us you keep us grounded that's the that's the beauty of the relationship how about you chris you got some thoughts on this this glorious anniversary yeah look i mean i think echoing a lot of what patrick said is just fantastic to see kind of where the episode has gone um as so the the podcast has gone and to see how fast the industry has grown over the last 12 months um you know uh, by the last counts the podcast has been played in about 125 different countries um we've done 23 24 episodes um you know it's, it's been incredible um you know and obviously very excited about doing more it's really lovely that we could uh, round off the first full year with uh, our anniversary with a second follow up with Ballard um, after Nicholas Pockard who came on the show so our first guest did a fantastic job to sort of finish with Randy McEwen was great uh, finished the year off um, you know and a big thank you to all of our listeners because actually we've pretty much grown 100% organically um, it's all been through referrals from our listeners so it really has meant a lot and um, actually what's been really nice is how many of you have reached out to us with thoughts and information how often you do contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter and share things across our emails so please keep doing that it's fantastic we really appreciate it um and a big thank you also to our host inspiration um who's done a fantastic job in uh, helping host us and, and to get everything up and running and uh, you know actually big thank you to you patrick and you andrew for putting up with me and my millions of questions and thank you to our guests for being fantastic awesome well it's been an absolute pleasure guys and uh, i will take uh i will take all of your thank yous and say you're absolutely welcome it's been a real pleasure guys and on to the next year yeah 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 <laughs> to the next year And that does it for us today here at Everything About Hydrogen. 
A huge thank you to Randy McEwen, CEO of Ballard Power Systems, for joining us on the show today. Always great to hear from the guys over at Ballard, and we hope that everyone listening enjoyed the conversation with Randy as much as we did. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris as well for their unparalleled co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you all know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at podcasts at inspiratia.com or find us on Twitter at at about hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen.